is our last week in a four-part series uh, dealing with the first few chapters of Genesis. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, we've been doing this to go along with what you have been studying in your Bible study classes. That includes every, everybody down from preschool all the way through adults, and we're wrapping that up this morning. I've entitled this morning's message, When Blood Speaks. And you know, it occurs to me that the Bible is an extremely bloody book, uh, particularly the first few chapters of Genesis are very bloody. Uh, we see death come into the world as a result of sin, and immediately death follows. I'll tell you just a, a lighthearted story before we get into some pretty difficult texts. Uh, my best friend, Taylor, many of you have met him. Uh, he's visited here a couple of times with me, he's spoken to our youth and him and his wife live in South Africa now. They are missionaries in Cape Town. And Taylor is what I would call just a classic tough guy. He was always an athlete in high school. And by the way, just what are good friends for except to tell stories about him when they're not here to defend themselves? I mean, he's halfway across the world. So Taylor was an athlete, you know, a guy's guy, a hunter, a fisherman, just, just an all-around tough guy. But I'll let you in on a little secret about Taylor the boy faints at the sight of a drop of human blood. And I'll never forget, now mind you, he, we, we've been hunting together for years, you, you know, you, I don't be too graphic, but you, you get a deer and there's just things you have to do afterwards that are, are quite somewhat disgusting and it doesn't bother him in the least bit. Gutting fish doesn't bother him, bother him in the least bit. But I'll never forget when we had just met, uh, Taylor had kind of had this thing for this girl that went to our church and he finally got up the courage to ask her out and they went on their first date. They went to a movie. It was a horror movie, and Taylor made it through about the first 30 seconds of the movie, and he passed out in the movie theater. <laughs> and so this girl, you know, had to wake him up, shake him up, and every once in a while, it's just nice for the tough guys to have a little bit of humility. Blood, blood is just a difficult thing for us to deal with. Uh, blood is not pleasant. But we're going to see this morning that, that blood is a very poignant speaker. And that God hears when blood speaks. That sounds quite strange, but I hope at the end of our time this morning it will make a lot more sense to you. As I said, we're in Genesis chapter 4. We're going to be reading the first 16 verses. So if you would, please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Genesis 4, beginning... In verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. 
Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We confess that it is often difficult for us to read, that it is often graphic and gives us real-life details about real-life people and real-life sin. I pray this morning that we would see a picture of ourselves in this Story. I pray that we would see your goodness and your character, and I pray that we would see that, that blood truly does speak, and that's a good thing for us. We ask all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. I should be seated. Well, this morning, what I'd like for us to do is, is, is examine three issues in this passage. I was uh, talking even with uh, Aaron this morning about how the first few chapters of Genesis, and particularly chapter 4, contain some of the hardest uh, Hebrew to translate. Now, don't take from that that I have spent all week translating Hebrew. I, I did quite poorly in my Hebrew classes in seminary. What I'm telling you is, from the variety of commentators that I read and consulted in my study, that those smart people all say that these are some of the hardest verses to translate. I will spare you all of the technical details, but I will assure you of this, that what we have in our English Bibles is an accurate enough representation for us to understand what God wants us to know from this passage. I only say that to you because many of you may have different translations. You may be astute Bible readers. I hope that you are. You look at the footnotes in your Bible. Perhaps you have a study Bible. You read those notes. It will tell you some of these things, that some of these translations are disputed and, and, and are kind of difficult to come to. But this morning, I hope that we see with clarity three specific things in this text, three specific action points for us, it comes straight out of this text. And the first one is this, that we are to remember God. That we are to remember God. And secondly, that we are to worship God. We are to worship Him. Thirdly, that we are to fear God. That we are to fear God. Remembering God is our first priority here. Let's pick back up in the text in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Right there is a picture of the grace of God in remembering and not abandoning Adam and Eve in their sin. You might remember last week, if you weren't here, just to recap, Genesis chapter 3 is the chapter that explains all of the brokenness that we have in our world. And Aaron shared with us how, how sin 
leads to death in every case. And at the end of chapter 3, we have a bit of a cliffhanger. We have an almost kind of a a to-be-continued type of situation. And last week, we simply left it with God had banished Adam and Eve from the garden, and he had put a cherubim, an angel with a flaming sword at the entrance to emphasize the fact that there was no way for them to get back in. And then chapter 3 just ends. It just stops. And if it ended there, and if it stopped there, there would be no hope for us. But the good news is that this morning we get to look in to chapter 4, and we get to see that, first of all, Adam and Eve remembered God. How did they remember God? Several ways. Firstly, they remembered His command to be fruitful and multiply. Now, that might seem insignificant to us. That might seem like, well, that's just a thing that should occur in the natural course of events. But remember that it was a direct command of God given to them before sin came into the world, before sin corrupted their understanding of God, before they became afraid and alienated from one another and from God. But that did not prevent them from remembering His command. Then you notice there what Eve says, it's quite profound. She says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Eve clearly understands that the gift of a child is from God. And that no life is created outside of the sovereign will and purpose of God. That even though their relationship with one another and their relationship with God had been fractured so significantly that they were cast out of the garden. They have nonetheless remembered God by following his command, and they have remembered that he is the source of life. There is just a very simple and straightforward word for us in that, and it is simply this, that when we sin, that when we are alienated from God, and even even as believers, as, as my hope and prayers and presumption is that many of you in here are believers, that even when we sin, we sense a communal separation from God. Not a, not a positional separation, because when we're in Christ, there's no condemnation, and we're not cast out of His presence. But we, we sense a relational, communal separation from God. My encouragement to you, and to, even to my own heart, is to remember Him. To remember that He is there, that He is active in your life, that He wants to give you good things, that He wants to sustain you. And in Eve's declaration that God helped her to conceive a child and bring forth that child into the world, we see a simple model for us. That even when we have transgressed God's law, that even when we have suffered the consequences of that, He has not left us. He has not, in a sense, forgotten us. And so we do not need to forget Him. So very simply, we need to remember God. And then verse 2, and again, she bore his brother Abel. That's all it says. But we can be sure that Eve, no doubt, thought the same thing about Abel. No doubt thought that he was a gift from God, and she thought rightly. And then we get, we get just a, a snippet of biographical information about Cain and Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. I was reading this week and uh, throughout church history, and, and perhaps you've even heard this, that 
that the author here is trying to set up a, a uh, competition between Cain and Abel, that the author is trying to say, well, uh, Abel's profession was noble and Cain's profession was ignoble. Uh, he had to deal with animals and he, had to, he, was, he was kind of you know, into the nasty work and Abel was just carrying on the work that Adam had given, uh, was given to by God. But honestly, quite frankly, that's just a bunch of nonsense <laughs> because Adam was given charge not only over the ground, but he was given charge over the animals. And so we, we dare not read too much into this. It just simply tells us that Abel tended the ground and Cain tended flocks, both noble professions that can bring honor and glory to God, and indeed were meant to bring honor and glory to God. So we need to remember him, even when we've sinned, even when we face the consequences, remember God. Secondly, and I'd like to spend a good bit of time on this point, we are to worship God. We are to worship God. Just a couple of uh, preparatory notes here. We, we in, our mo- in the modern church often associate what happens up here with worship. And indeed, that is an aspect of worship. But it's not the only aspect of worship. The hour that you and I spend here in this room on Sunday mornings is just a fraction of the worship that God desires from us and that God commands us to give to Him. I lament to no degree this thing that we call the worship wars that men and women of God who, who seem to have a relationship with him and seem to be in step with his word would literally, literally fight one another over styles of worship. It is absolutely ridiculous. You ought to be able to worship God in Swaziland, in downtown Anniston, in a black church, in a white church, in a traditional church, in a contemporary church, in the same way as you would anywhere else because the worship that you give to God comes from here. And that's a strong word, but it's a word that needs to be said. That worship is not confined to what happens on this stage and it's not confined to what happens in this building. We're going to see that in the life of Cain and Abel. We're going to see how worship goes terribly wrong in the life of Cain pick back up in verse 3. <clears throat> Excuse me. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. I wonder if you, like me, have read this story and thought several things. Firstly, that, that this is quite unfair. That, that this seems very arbitrary on, on the part of God. That this seems like God gave preferential treatment to Abel. And then he shorted or slighted Cain. Or, if, if we're not tempted to think that, our minds start going in a different direction. They start saying, well, here, here's what was happening. See, Abel, see, he, he, he brought um, the, the, the fatted portions of his um, of, of his flock, and as I say that I, I recognized it earlier, I had them backwards. <laughs> Cain and Abel in their jobs. Cain is dealing with the flocks. Abel is working the ground. Nonetheless, um, he brings these fatted portions. He brings the firstborn, and then we tend to think, well, perhaps Cain just got the leftovers out of the field. Perhaps he just went out to the field. The season is over. You know, the uh, the okra is getting a little bit tough, too too tough to eat. Speaking of okra, uh, this week. 
Mr. Lester, wherever he is, he brought us some okra at the church, y'all, and I accepted that offering, okay? I'm just going to go right, right quick and tell you, and I've eaten a little bit too much of it this week. And so the issue is not the fact that he brought produce and that Abel brought a fatted portion. We don't, again, need to read too much into the text here. We don't, we don't need to attempt to spiritualize them. We don't need to attempt to, to come up with all of these reasons why the offering was accepted on behalf of one and not on behalf of another. I hope to be able to show that to you in just a moment. So this is the picture. Abel has brought the fatted portions. He has brought the firstborn of his flock. Cain has brought the produce from the ground that God gave him to manage. And God simply looks with favor on one, and he looks with displeasure on another. I think it's informative for us, you don't have to turn there, but in Hebrews chapter 11, the famous uh, Hall of Fame uh, of Faith chapter that we have in the New Testament, Abel is mentioned. And as New Testament Christians, we read the Old Testament through a New Testament lens. And the writer of Hebrews gives us a clue to why Abel's offering was accepted. And it has nothing to do with what he brought to the table. It has nothing to do with the quantity of what he brought. It had nothing to do with the variety of things that he brought. It had nothing to do with the fact that it was an animal versus produce. You know what it simply says? Abel had faith and God accepted his offering. It's just stunningly simple that Abel had faith and God accepted his offering. There's such a word in that for us, and, and it is this. So many of us, so often, come to God in our worship based on our own merit. We come to God based on the fact that we think that we are good enough. That we think that, well, I made this much money this week, and so I'm going to, well, I'm not just going to tithe this week. I'm going to give 11%, and God will be impressed. Or, or, well, we had a love offering last week, and I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll just give a tremendous amount of money to the love offering, and God will accept me. And friends, I am here to tell you this morning that if that is the attitude that we bring to God in our worship, we are in deep spiritual trouble. Deep spiritual trouble. I want to read to you what John Calvin, the, the reformer, says regarding this. Speaking about how God wants our worship, he says this, For it is his will, that is God's will, it is God's will first to have us devoted to himself. Then he seeks our deeds in testimony of our obedience to him, but only in the second place. It is to be remarked that all the figments by which men mock both God and themselves are the fruit of unbelief. So if you want to answer the question, why was Cain's offering rejected by God? It is as simple as this. Cain lived in unbelief. Cain lived in unbelief, in a perpetual state of unbelief. 
Implicit in this text is the reminder that although Adam and Eve were separated from God, alienated from one another in their relationships, they nonetheless taught their children about who God was and what he expected. This offering does not just come out of the blue. It was not an idea that Cain and, Cain and Abel got together and thought, hmm, it would be neat and interesting if we would take some of our animals and take some of our fruit and bring it to God, because that would be neat. Not in the least bit. Adam taught these two boys how to worship God. This foreshadows what we will see throughout the Old Testament in the way that, that offerings and sacrifices are prescribed. And that, again, is a hint why we know that, that Cain's offering, the physical elements of his offering, were not the issue. Because all throughout the Old Testament, we have the, the admonition to bring grain offerings and to bring offerings of produce that, that the Israelites were supposed to bring into the storehouse. So again, the issue is not the content of the offering. The issue is the heart of the worshiper. And so Adam had taught his sons how to worship. He had commanded them, no doubt, to worship. And in fact, this may not have even been the first time that they had brought sacrifices. That's not what the text says. The text says oh, over the course of time, or as time progressed, or, or in the course of time, they brought an offering. This may have been the hundredth offering they brought. It might have been the first. We don't know. But we know this for certain, that contrary to Abel's offering in faith, Cain came in unbelief. Cain was quite simply not a man of faith. And as we're going to see in just a moment, Cain's interaction with God and ultimately Cain's curse mirrors and in fact foreshadows what will happen to every single person who does not live in faith towards God on the last day. Hebrews again tells us that without faith, it is what? Impossible to please God. So we remember God and we worship God. Let's continue to see how this worship unfolds. I'm going to pick back up in verse 6. And then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So worship has gone terribly sideways here. Worship that is supposed to come from the heart, that is supposed to be pure, that as Jesus told his disciples in the Gospels, that a worshiper is supposed to come in spirit and in truth. Cain did none of those things. He suffers the consequence by being rejected by God, and he becomes angry. And then God, I think, gives him a chance to bounce back from this. I, I don't think that this conversation is recorded simply for our historical benefit. I genuinely think that God wanted Cain to repent. And I think we're on pretty solid scriptural ground there because Peter tells us that God is not slow in keeping his promise. In fact, God wants all to come to repentance and belief in Christ. He is not wishing that any should perish. So despite Cain's lack of belief, despite his offering which came from a corrupted heart, God still shows a picture 
of grace for Cain. He asked him, why are you angry? Again, this is reminiscent, right, of the garden scene. God is asking rhetorical questions. <laughs> he is asking questions that he knows the answer to. But he's giving them a chance and an opportunity to respond. He's giving Cain a chance and an opportunity to respond in the same way he did Adam and Eve. And he says this tremendous phrase, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Now, if we're not careful in reading that, we can, we can tend to think, now wait a minute, we come to God solely on faith, without merit, without works, without anything that we bring to the table. But then God tells Cain, if you do well. Some of your Bibles might say, if you do right. The way that we need to see that is the same way that we've seen everything else in here is the issue of the heart. God says, essentially, if you do well, if you do the right things with the right motives, because remember, Cain did the right thing. Did he not? Cain brought the offering. That's the right thing to do. But it was not accepted. So we're only left to conclude that he came with the wrong heart. And God just says, look, Cain, if you do this well, if you do this right from your heart, you will be accepted. That simple. But then he gives this warning, and this is tremendous for us. If you do not do well in verse, excuse me, in the end of verse 7, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. That phrase has always, always, always struck me. Always. Ever since I was a teenager and I read that. Because it's a vivid picture, is it not? It's a vivid picture of all of our lives. I could go around this room, we could go around this room and poll the audience and you could tell us what kind of sin is crouching at your door every single morning when you wake up. It can be things that we might classify as a little bitty sin. It can be something that we would classify as a capital offense. But all of us know in our hearts, in our deepest thoughts, what kind of sin is crouching at our doors, waiting for us. This is why Satan doesn't attack people in all the same way. And this is why many of us have trouble empathizing with people who fall into grave sin. Do we not? A few weeks ago, we hosted the, the uh, homosexuality roundtable, and, and we tried to encourage everyone that, that just like Cain's sin, the sin of homosexuality is rooted in the sin of unbelief. It is rooted in the sin of the rejection of who God is and what he wants from us. And the behavior that manifests itself in that way is just an outworking of that. But many of us, if we're honest, have trouble empathizing with homosexuals because we don't struggle with that sin. But let somebody preach about pride. We get uncomfortable. Let somebody preach about greed. Let somebody criticize your style and preference in worship. You see, friends, sin is crouching at every single one of our doors, and its desire is to have us. That phrase is the exact same phrase that Aaron preached on last week. When Eve's curse involves her desire being for her husband, the desire to control, to manipulate, to reorient the relationship that then would result in Adam's, rather than having servant 
godly leadership over her, a, dem- a diminu- diminutive spirit and, and a, de- a demeaning way of controlling her. Well, in the same way, the same exact phrase is used here. That just as Eve and her curse would have a desire to rule over her husband, sin has a desire to rule over all of us. And guess what? Sin won out in the case of Cain. It won out. Sin got its desired effect in Cain. It got it. And if we're honest, sin gets its desired effect in us all too often. Sin is crouching at our door. And it's unique to all of us. So we must take heed lest we fall. What does God say? You must rule over it. You must rule over it. Not in your own strength. Not because you think you can muster up the courage or the willpower, but relying on the Spirit of God. Remember, we are New Testament Christians, New Testament believers who believe that if we have trusted in Christ on faith alone, that the Spirit dwells within us and empowers us to resist the temptation of the sin that is waiting at our door. There is a New Testament counterpart to this. I would draw your attention. Let's we try each week to, to turn to a different passage in the Scripture. So do that with me. Turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. I'd like for us to see what James says about this issue. James chapter 1, verse, beginning in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. And these two verses are key. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This puts to rest the four-year-old that lives inside of all of us. The four-year-old who's on the playground and pushes down the other four-year-old or bullies them or makes fun of, or they're in the classroom, and those of you who are teachers, you see this every day probably. One kid starts laughing, and the next kid starts laughing, and you call the next kid down, and what does he say? He made me do it. He made me do it. What did Adam and Eve say last week? Adam said, God, first of all, you gave me the woman, and she made me do it. So both of you are at fault. What did Eve say? Well, the serpent. That four-year-old lives inside of every single one of us. But it can't. Not according to what James says. Because James says that the sin that we commit comes from where? Here. From our own hearts. From our own desires. And that those desires give birth to sin. And then sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. We all know this to be true. We know this to be true in a thousand little ways. We know this to be true in the ultimate sense. The sin brings death to the world and that we all suffer because of it. So in our worship of God, we need to remember that it must be true. It must come from a right heart. That the externals are are simply just signs of what is going on in 
eternally. And that we must remember that even as we bring worship, even as we, as we seek to come before God and do the things he asks us to do, sin is crouching at our door and its desire is to have us. But we must rule over it. We must master it. One final thing before we, before we move on to the, to the last issue here of fearing God, that we are to fear God. I, I have wrestled with this all week, and so I just want to preface with a pastoral tone, and I, and I, and I hope that you sense that. But in the news this week, if you follow the news at all, you know it has been dominated by the visit of Pope Francis. You know that our media have lost their collective minds over covering this visit. And I have to be honest with you, uh, some of you might know my, my educational background is in history. I have a bachelor's degree in history, and so I love history. I really do love it. So the historian in me has been intrigued all week, has been mystified by the fact that the first time in U.S. history the president and the vice president stand on the tarmac at Andrews Air Force Base and welcome a foreign dignitary. The first time ever. First time ever that a sitting pope has ever addressed a joint session of Congress. So the historian in me is processing all of this through an historical lens, through the remarkable thing that this is, looking back in time and all these sorts of things, and then the theologian in me starts to come out. And I start to see what a dreadful mess this whole thing is. Unless you think I'm being overly critical, this is not a commentary on the man himself. This is not a commentary on Catholics in general. My father is a Catholic. I know Catholic people. There are born-again Catholics inside the Catholic Church. But here's what you and I need to understand. That the very existence of a thing like the Pope betrays the gospel. Because the doctrine of the Catholic Church teaches that you and I must come through a human mediator to be absolved of our sin. That's what it teaches. Now, lest we become too critical of our Catholic friends, many of us live that way. We just happen to think we are our own personal human mediator, right? We just happen to think, well, if I do enough good things, and if I feel bad enough about it, if I, if I have sorrow, and I, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Let me just read to you a couple of, of things from, from a document, or from, from, a, from a time in history called the Council of Trent in 1546. This was in uh, response to Martin Luther and the other reformers and the changes that they were trying to bring within the Catholic Church. This document still stands today in 2015. This is what the Catholic Church believes. And so you have Catholic friends. This is what their church believes. And when we go to Mexico in a couple of weeks with our mission team, these are the people that we're going to be ministering to and trying to free from the captivity of this false religion. Just, re just listen to what the doctrine says. And rather than criticizing the Catholics, internalize it and say, do I believe this? Is this how I approach God? Canon 14, point 14 in the Council of Trent. If anyone says that man is absolved from his sins and justified because he firmly believes that he is absolved and justified, or that no one is truly justified except him who believes himself justified, and that by faith alone absolution and justification are effected, let him be anathema. 
but it's just a fancy way of saying, let him be cut off. He's not a part of the church. Canon 16. If anyone says that he will for certain, with an absolute and infallible certainty, have that great gift of perseverance even to the end, let him be anathema. And then lastly, Canon 30. If anyone says that after the reception of the grace of justification, the guilt is so remitted and the debt of eternal punishment so blotted out to every repentant sinner that no debt of temporal punishment remains to be discharged either in this world or in purgatory before the gates of heaven can be opened. Let him be anathema. This is what Pope Francis believes. This is why they had a canonization ceremony for a saint here in the United States because, you know, that saint is now guaranteed direct access to heaven. The issue here is not to rehash the Reformation. The issue here is not to elicit Protestant pride. We are Protestants, and we should be bold in that declaration. The issue here is to see that what is being taught in that institution, and I only bring it up because it's such a current news item, is prone to slip into our own hearts. We are prone to believe that there is something that we must do to earn the favor of God. We are prone to believe that we cannot be certain that God loves us. And that he will keep us until the last day. We can be prone to believe that God will not accept us on faith alone. That's what we can be prone to believe. And so as we look outwardly and we see this modern day representation of a, of a, of a, of a diluted and distorted gospel. Let's look at it as though we were looking at a mirror. And make sure that it has not infected us. Make sure that it has not taken root in our lives and root in our churches and root among our children. This has parenting implications we don't have time to talk about. But do we teach our children that they are acceptable to us based on their work? Or based on their sonship, as Aaron alluded to in the prayer time. Based on the fact that they are a son or a daughter. We don't let them off the hook. We don't, we don't just... Hands-off parenting, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about letting our children know for sure and for certain that we love them because they are our children. That's how God parents you and I. He disciplines us. He brings correction into our lives. But always for the point of restoration. Always the desire to bring us back into relationship with Him. This has implications in every area of our life. So if I haven't been clear, I'll say again, the issue is not to criticize the others. The issue is to see how the others teach, the others live, the others believe theologically, and then examine those things in our own hearts and make sure, make sure that it doesn't creep into the way we live, the way we worship, and the way we interact with God or with each other. Lastly, and this is difficult, We are to fear God. We are to fear God. The first two points, remember God, worship God, we see as uh, we have examples in Genesis chapter 4. We have positive examples of how to do those things. Fear God. We see a man who refuses to do so. And in that is a warning for us. Let's pick up in verse 8. Cain spoke to his brother Abel, to Abel his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. 
And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Again, rhetorical question, obviously. He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. His blood is speaking. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on all the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. There is so, so much here, but if we can distill it down, we can say this. And in, in verse 7, verse 6 and 7, God gives Cain the chance to repent. And in verse 8 and following, Cain does away with all of those opportunities. He, he spurns the invitation, he scorns the grace of God, and he decides that that sin that was crouching at his door, he, he's not just going to flirt with it, he's going to run out and give it a great big old hug and then just run headlong out into the world with it. So he talks to his brother, let's go to the field, and then he kills him. It's the first recorded murder that we see in the scriptures. He kills him. And then God says something interesting. Cain, Abel's blood is speaking to me. Now, we're all smart people. We know that there's not some kind of cartoonish, strange, supernatural situation going on here. It's just figurative language, but it's powerful figurative language. That the blood of Abel cries out to God for the injustice that has been committed against him. You know, there's a sub-point in that for us. Innocent blood cries out to God, and he hears it. So in our country that has committed evil atrocities that dwarf the Holocaust in the murdering of unborn children, that has not gone unnoticed before God. And he will demand an answer for it. When someone, either in an interpersonal relationship or at the hands of a, a dictatorial government or at the hands of an abusive authority figure is murdered or abused or violated, their cries do not go unheard by the Creator. They do not go unheard. That's both a comfort to us and a challenge to us. It's a comfort because we know that God is good and that He takes care of those who are innocently killed. He, he, he avenges them, as we're going to see in just a moment. But that's a warning to us. That if we shed innocent blood, which I don't think any of us are planning to do, <laughs> but if we do, God is going to demand an account from us for that innocent blood. And so he tells him, his blood is crying out to me, it's speaking to me. And we won't rehash the reading here, but Cain again, again has an opportunity to be contrite. He has an opportunity to fall down on his face and say, what have I done? We know he has this opportunity because the Bible is, is full of murderers who receive forgiveness. <laughs> David, chief among them. So all hope is not lost yet. But Cain is steadfast in his 
refusal to submit to God. Steadfast. I wonder how often we embody the spirit of Cain when we are confronted with sin. Even, I'm just speaking even to believers here. I don't believe Cain is a believer. I don't believe Cain was ever redeemed. But for us, if we claim Christ, how do we respond when we are rightly accused of sin? Are we like Cain when we start arguing with God? And notice, Cain is not primarily concerned that God has confronted him in his guilt. Cain is primarily concerned that he's going to be killed too. He's primarily concerned that somebody's going to find him and they're going to find out what he did and they're going to kill him. So Cain misses the point entirely. Cain is concerned with his temporal life, with his earthly life, to the peril and detriment of his eternal life. How many of us take on the posture of Cain when we're confronted either by a brother or sister or by God himself in our sin? It's a question only we can answer in our hearts, but it's a pertinent question. It's a question that we, we must deal with and settle because the scriptures say, Godly sorrow leads to repentance. See, Cain has sorrow, but it's not godly sorrow because it doesn't lead to repentance. He has worldly sorrow. He has sorrow that he got caught, sorrow that he'll face the consequences. But godly sorrow says, despite all those things, despite all the consequences that may come my way, I am most concerned with offending God and most concerned with being restored into relationship with him. And so that leads us to repentance. That leads us to repentance when we come to faith initially, when we believe in Christ for salvation, and it leads to repentance throughout our Christian life as we wrong one another and wrong God in this fallen world. Godly sorrow, unlike Cain, leads us to repentance. But Cain spurns the grace of God yet again. And then God does something interesting in verse 15. He says, the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. There's, a, there's something to be noted here. I was reading some, some commentaries, and, and they were anticipating the question that perhaps many of us have, many, many of you have. Why wasn't Cain just killed? Why didn't God just kill him? We know just a few chapters later, in Genesis 9-6, that God says... If a man sheds the blood of another man, by men his blood will be shed. In a sense, it's a very terrible paraphrase, but we have the institution of the death penalty. The capital offense, you take a life, your life will be taken. And we see that worked out in the Mosaic Law and other, other things later on. But, but it is a curious question. Why didn't God enact the death penalty here? And why doesn't he, let, why doesn't he just let maybe the natural consequence unfold that somebody who sees Cain will just kill him? I think the answer is simple. In Romans chapter 12, Paul tells us that vengeance belongs to the Lord alone. That vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and I will repay. So quite frankly, this is just a sovereign decision of a sovereign God to punish Cain, to curse him, to, to strip him from the land that he is so intimately connected to. To make him a wanderer throughout all of the earth. But he chooses to allow him to live. Practically speaking, it may be because there still needs to be some men to populate the earth. It might just be as simple as that. But we do know this. That God says, taking a life is his prerogative. 
And that later on in the scripture, that theology will be developed. And he, again, back to Romans chapter 13, Paul says that God uses the state as an agent of his vengeance sometimes. That he uses the government to, to wield the sword, not in vain, but so they can punish evildoers. And so whatever debates we might have, and whatever opinions we might have about the death penalty and it's the equity with which it's put forth, which is a significant concern, the fact of the matter that at its basic level, the death penalty is sanctioned by God. Not flippantly. Not just because you get offended, not, not because an accident occurs, but, but it, it is sanctioned by God. And we see that throughout the scriptures. But here, God just decides, no, I'm going to protect Cain, which is just an evidence of God's common grace towards an unrepentant sinner. And it could, again, just be as simple as him needing to continue to populate the earth, which I would commend to your reading later today or this week on your own to see in chapter 4 how he does that. We look lastly here at the negative example of Cain, not fearing God. So why should we? Why should we? Much, much has been made. <laughs> much um, hermeneutical gymnastics, I don't know what you want to say, has been made out of the phrase that we should fear God. And, and preachers try to give all kinds of qualifiers and all kinds of explanations and all kinds of soft peddling to make us feel better that we shouldn't fear God. But the truth of the matter is that you can't get around what the Bible says when it says to fear God. It's, it's quite simply that straightforward. Hebrews 10 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing. Luke 12, that's the writer of Hebrews. You want to hear some words that will really shock you, listen to what Jesus says in Luke 12. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do to you, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed the body, has authority to cast into hell. Cain did not see God this way. He did not see him this way. You and I would do well to see him this way. To see God as one that if we fall into his hands unprotected, we're going to deal with that just a moment. If we fall into his hands unprotected, there is no hope for us. There is no hope for us. If, if, if we can come face to face with the one who has the authority and the ability to cast us into hell, there is no hope for us. Before we can embrace the love of God and before we can understand his care for us, we must understand that he is to be feared. But here's the really, really good news. Again, we're in Hebrews. We don't have to turn there. If we fear him, but if we're in Christ, all that fear goes away. You see, Peter says that perfect love drives out all fear. And so it's kind of like this progression that if Cain had rightly feared God, it would have led to an embrace of the love of God and the protection of God in an eternal sense. Not just a physical sense. You and I have the benefit of knowing that that is the progression our lives can take. That we come to the realization, and I hope it's the case for many of you in this room, that God is so holy and so infinite that one sin against him 
leaves us deserving of hell. But at the same time as Romans 6.23 says that sin leads to death, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And the perfect love that Christ brings casts out all of those fears. So there's a progression. I was a little disingenuous when I began the message. We don't just stop with fear. We fear God, which motivates us to see the profound love of God in Christ. You know, Abel's blood was not the only blood that that speaks in the Bible. And I'll leave you with this. Hebrews 12, 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, the blood of Abel got the attention of God. It was innocent blood. It should not have been shed at the hands of his brother. Abel didn't deserve to be murdered by his brother. As much as the blood of Abel got the attention of God, the blood of Christ gets the attention so much more. That when you and I confess our faith in him, faith alone, trust alone in Christ, we leave all of our good works behind, we leave all of the things that we think might impress God behind, we leave behind all of our pretension, and we come to God in godly sorrow, which leads to repentance, and we claim the blood of Jesus over our hearts and over our lives, we need not fear anymore. We need not be restless wonders like Cain. We need not fear danger in the world like Cain. Why? Because the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. That the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover us of all of our sins. The blood of Jesus is sufficient for us to come not just with our good works, but with all of our baggage and our bad works and our sin to come before God and exchange the righteousness of Christ for the unrighteousness of, of us. That is the invitation that is given to every single person throughout time and every single person in this room. And my hope and prayer is that most of us have embraced that invitation, but I'm quite certain that there are some in this room who are dead set to continue to live as Cain lived, who are dead set to continue to live in the pattern of Cain, to live in unbelief. And this is what I can tell you, that just like Cain, it will not end well for you. Just like Cain, you will be cast from the presence of the Lord, not just temporarily, but forever. And that's not God's desire for you. Look at all the opportunities and chances God gave to Cain and consider that he is doing the same for you. Now is the time to respond to the blood of Jesus. Now is the time to believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins and for access to the Father through him. Let me pray.